Welcome back to this episode of Superhero Ethics, where we are continuing our conversation about Avatar. It turns out that a three-season television show that had massive effects on all of us and is considered one of the most impactful of the last 20 or 30 years, we couldn't really wrap up all of in an hour. We are committed to doing the second half also in only an hour, um, so we'll do as much as we can. There's a whole lot we're going to put on the table, but that's why I am, and I think Paul is, and possibly Riki, going to be back here to talk to you about the live action show as it's coming out, during which we'll probably talk a lot about the third, the the uh, the, the animated again. So let's move on to some of the other characters. We're not going to give them quite as much time, but I want to talk for a bit about Sokka because Sokka is a character who I do think is very essential to this story, and I think that his sexism, his misogyny at the beginning of the show, is essential because I think that in you know, misogyny is obviously very real. Sexism is very real. And the way that it plays out for him, as he is the kind of like the goofy guy, the, the jokes guy, the geeky guy, but he's also the one who's the most overtly sexist, you know, specifically saying like, oh, girls can't fight. And having this attitude that girls, you know, shouldn't be able to fight as good as he is. It, it is very representative of things that are were in our culture at the time that the show came out. And are still very much in in our culture at the time that the show is uh, happening now, at, at this new time. They're certainly very prevalent in the sort of uh, card game and, and geeky worlds that Riki and I have spent so much time in. Uh, my imagination is that they're still very much a part of a lot of martial arts worlds that that Paul's been a lot more time in. Um, well, certainly uh, I, poker I, and chess. Yeah, very much so. I but might've... I remember feeling, even when I watched the show, that it was so on the nose. It was so over the top. That, that to me, it felt like to me the part because one of the great things about his character is that very quickly in like episode four, Suki kicks his ass, and even by the end of that episode, he's like, Nope, I was wrong, you should train me. And then those attitudes never really appear again. And I think that is such an important character, and he becomes a very important character, and his respect for women, I think, is really shown. But it felt to me then, and I think even more so to me now. I want that plot line there, but I feel like I want it to be a lot more subtle. In term, in, be, just because I, I sometimes feel when I, when someone is presented as being sexist or racist or any of those things, part of the point should be for people to examine themselves and wonder if they're doing the same thing. And if they're so over the top, then it's very easy for people to be like, "Oh, well, I'm not racist like that guy, so I must not be racist." Um, what's your take on on what you'd want to see from a live action version of Sokka, especially that aspect of him? Hmm. I th I think it's kind of tied. His sexism at the beginning is tied into his feelings about his sister, right? Because mm -hmm. obviously his sister is a woman, but she is also a bender, and he is not. And I think this is also like a key part of his character, is that he doesn't have powers like everyone else in, in the in the crew does. So like it reminds me of um. Gosh, what's it's been so long? Xander, Xander, yeah. and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. He has a whole episode devoted, I think, called the Zeppo, named after Zeppo Marx, mm -hmm. and it's like the secondary character who's like not as important or well known as everyone else. But gosh darn it, they're here too, and they are important. Is the key as well? Sokka becomes the leader. He comes up with the plan to invade the Fire Nation. So it's like, and he also like learns how to sword fight from a from a master. But 
that's part of his journey is like not only letting go of the sexism, but letting go of his jealousy and his feelings of inadequacy about not being able to bend. Mm-hmm. So I think they're closely tied together. Right. So in that way, we say that like Suki defeating him, he kind of needs to feel that he's at least the best of the non-benders. And so another non-bender defeating him in a fight who is a woman, that that kind of is like even more than he can take. Yeah, I think it's all intertwined. Like it's it's very hard to separate it all. Yeah, I mean, I, I I do feel like that's that's an important part of Sokka's character in the show. I think mm-hmm. it didn't necessarily have to be, but that's the choice they made, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it's a fantasy world, so it's like it doesn't have to be patriarchal. Like, it's not. Yeah. It's not. It's inspired by various real world cultures, but it's not meant to be a representation representation of any single or specific cultures really per se um so i think you know you could do without that i i think his sense of humor which they completely excised from the uh live adaptation uh Mm. the first one i think to me yeah 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 it's horrible there's like there's like they call it out several times in the show they're like he's the funny one like even like i think zuko mentions it as well like as the enemy like he knows he's the right he knows that that's the funny one exactly and so like i feel like that's an aspect of the character you you really can't remove but i i do Mm -hmm. think in order to remove the sexism i think you would have to probably kind of have to remove it from the culture in a way where it it feels like the men are the fighters right and the women look after the village kind of like that's that's how they and maybe the hunters and whatever and that's like that's the culture and like that's yeah that's a thing he certainly doesn't come up with the sexism on his own they they specifically call out that the men left to go fight right and then later and granted this is with the northern water tribe not the southern but it seems like they're not that different Katara is told she can't be a bender because she's a woman. So well, right, she can't yeah, be yeah. a warrior. Like she has to use her bending for healing. For healing. That's right. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. She can't learn how he, to... The guy doesn't want to train her, yeah, in that regard. Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's all very true. And I think uh, I'm sorry. Oh yeah. On. No, I was just gonna say, so I feel like having that in there, I think is good. I it's not Zuko's redemption arc. I, I do right. view it as like a redemption arc. I mean, it's something yeah. he learns from his culture that like we look at as like a negative thing, the way Zuko learned that the Fire Nation is great and should go around conquering everybody, you know? And he unlearns it. But and but it's like, it is quicker and it doesn't have the same struggle and it doesn't have the same... But, you know, but, but I think Riki's right that in terms of kind of coming to peace with his relationship with Katara, because um, I think he's the older brother, right? But, like, she kind of, like, moms him. You know, yes, I so th- I, I, I think there's probably some kind of and he's not a bender. And so, like, I think there's some kind of feelings of inadequacy or whatever. And he has to get over all of that and, and mature. And, and he does. And yeah. I think he has a nice arc overall. But he definitely, you know, is played like more of a secondary character. So he just doesn't get as much the way Sabine learning to use the dark saber. You know, I was like, this is cool. I think this episode's great. But like, she doesn't get you know, a whole series to be learning stuff. Sokka yeah, doesn't get a whole series to be like learning to not be overtly misogynist. You know, he, he gets an episode and that's, yeah. that's kind of the way it is with secondary characters. Most of the time he, he gets an episode to learn sword fighting as well, which is that's what true, it feels true. even yeah, more yeah, rushed, yeah. but we all know that's how long it takes. A lot like, of the training 
in this series is very yeah. rushed. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, Have... Sokka literally, I think, spends two days? Or was it only yeah. one day? Mm-hmm. Learning how to sword fight. Yeah, and most Iro, of it is, like, doing calligraphy. Iroh becomes a bodybuilder, it seems like, in yeah, a yeah. couple of days. He, he might have been in he might have been in there for a while though yeah. I think that's a little less well, clear but, but that's I a conceit say, of the of the show yeah we have to for sure we that, know like, the whole show takes place in six months right, so right, he's right. there for the maximum three that's and, true yeah, yeah. But, I, I would buy shredded by Iroh as a workout plan yeah <laughs> that's shredded by incredibly Iroh. successful <laughs> I I Are will you say looking though forward that, to seeing that by the way in live action do do we want that transformation <laughs> I'm I mean that's one of the few casting notes I know and I'm. Yes. <laughs> I want to see that. I want to see to what extent that is accomplished. I'm nervous about it because I want them to have cast a heavier actor, not a thin actor in a fat suit. And I don't know how you could show it without him like being it. They can just get in shape. It. You could like Chris Pratt it. Yeah, but doing that over the course of filming. I guess they have Three a, a years. Bunch of time I mean, they're yeah. not going to film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but here's here's the... The heck was I talking about? <laughs> We were talking about oh, soccer, but I'm always no. going to bring it back to Iroh. Yeah. Right, and I'm going to bring it back to Aang. So, <laughs> sorry, Matthew. Um, You're fine. But the the point being that the whole show is really showing actually several characters, but especially Aang, learning a lot of things, but over a lot of episodes, right? There, There is yeah. a lot of learning. That is like almost the theme of the show is like, you know, learning and acquiring skills and at the same time learning how one should use those skills or how how do you choose to use those skills and so ang and then katara also in terms of pursuing her water bending they get they get a lot of little bits along the way where you can see sort of incremental progress i mean ang's already kind of like an airbending master at the beginning right Mm -hmm. but like he's got to pick up these other bending skills and and katara is more of a water bending novice and she's really developing that skill over three seasons so I think they really get the full, you know, Ezra Bridger treatment, whereas, you know, Sokka gets more of a Sabine Ren. Yeah. And, and just going back to the main question, yeah, I think we're, I think we're mostly in agreement. I, I, to me, mostly it's like, I, I, like, I don't think it would be a good idea to get rid of it entirely. I just, I just, I would be totally okay if his sexism is more subtle, but also still changes pretty fast, you know, early on. Yeah, if they want um, to treat it a little differently for live action, I think that's fine. But I think yeah. completely writing it out would maybe be like... Eh, I don't know. It w- it would be better than writing out his humor. I'll just yeah. I'll just say that. Especially because in some ways he is the character who had. I think actually no, it's not in some ways. This is fully true. He is by far the character who gets the most romantic plot development. Yeah. We have like the the Katara Ang thing, which a lot of people have strong feelings about, myself included, and that kind of wraps up very quickly at the very end. Um, but we have. He has two pronounced romances, even to the point where the end of one stops him from moving forward with with the second until he's had time to heal in a way that I think is really beautifully portrayed. That's rough, buddy. Yes. Do you think they meant that to be Zuko is just really awkward at giving giving help to people and doesn't know what to say? Or do you think they meant that to be just like, no, that's a that's a legit thing to say when your friend says something horrible? I don't know. Yeah. But it the, works. Yeah, I don't know. I don't about, he, 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 Zuko says this after literally Sokka has said, yeah, my first girlfriend got turned into the moon. And it has become a meme of like the thoughts and prayers, the like 
what not to say to someone when they've massively trauma dumped on you. See, yeah, but the I, delivery I, is so perfect. Yeah, yeah. I view it different. Entirely sincere. I, I I don't view it as like this, like thoughts and prayers. I view it as like. I don't know. I, a friend of mine told me that, like, his friend died in a car accident one time. And I was just like, that sucks. Like, and that's it, yeah. you know? And yeah. he was like, that actually felt like the perfect thing for someone to say. Because, like, people are always like, oh, I'm sorry. That's horrible. I'm so sorry for your loss. Like, the like, there's just nothing you can say sometimes. Yeah. All you can do true. is just be like, that's rough, buddy. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. like, what else do you have to add? There's, there's just, yeah. That's it. You just acknowledge someone's suffering, what they went through. Yeah. There's, but, but it. speaking to that moment, Matthew, you, you, you've asked a couple times, like, what do we want in the live action, right? Mm-hmm. Version. I want a little bit more of this Zuko Sokka interaction and their relationships with their fathers, because obviously, like we've talked yeah. about Zuko and his father, Sokka has a an interesting relationship with his father that I think characterizes him with some of the things we've talked about, because when his father and the other men, the warriors in the tribe go off to fight the fire nation, they deliberately leave Sokka behind because he's too young, but they give him like this. His father's like, you have to stay behind and like protect your sister and grand. Right. Like gives him this mission. Mm -hmm. But he, Sok himself, sees that as a moment where he was not ready yet. He wasn't a warrior yet. And so, like, they both have these feelings of not wanting to disappoint their fathers. That I I didn't really get enough of in the animated version mm-hmm. of them talking about that. So I'd, I'd like to see more of that. I, I'm nervous about Like, I do agree with that. But I think one thing that really came through as I was re-watching the show... And kind of surprising in the dog didn't bark way because it's a dog that shouldn't bark all the time, but does bark all the time now in TV. What? Sokka's dad is fundamentally a decent guy who made a hard decision at a hard time. And I think that that is in the show, like, yeah, both Katara and Sokka have really mixed feelings about their father because of the way he <clears> left. And I think you're right. He probably put too much responsibility on Zuko, uh, on um, uh, Sokka. But the way it's like we never learned that like he has a dark secret or that he he left because like he had this falling out with their mother. Like that's what I mean about the dog that didn't bark. I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop. And it never does. He's a good, loving father who had to like and even he never really apologizes to the kids for leaving them. He's like, it really sucked that I had to do this, and I hate that. And I hate that it wasn't there for your mother. And because I, I do agree with you. I think Sokka's feelings about his father and having to live up to this and the damage it does to him are very, very real. But to me, it's it part of what makes it a, a really counterpoint is that Zuko's dad is a, is a certifiably horrible person and horrible father. Mm-hmm. I don't feel that about Sokka's father. I think Sokka's father made a really hard decision in a really hard situation that did real harm to his kids, but probably did the best he could. And I think that that's a real important, like, but... But the fact that Sokka could still be suffering and having to live up to the reputation of his father is, is kind of what makes it so powerful. Yeah, I, I don't need it to be like an in-depth conversation between them. But when they go yeah. on the adventure and like try to uh, break Sokka's father out of prison, right? The, the two-episode mm-hmm. arc. I just felt like 
I, I, I could have used like one or two more interactions where like Sokka talks about his dad and like Zuko says something or reacts in a way that makes it clear that he's thinking of his father and like how how different Sokka's relationship is. And like maybe it's there, but I, I guess I, may I, I didn't pick up on it or remember it as memorable. So just like mm. give me just a little bit more of that. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Yeah, I think I, I really do that. I, I just want to make sure that the father stays a good dude, is all mm-hmm. I'm kind of saying. Talk yeah, yeah, you, don't, you definitely don't need to, like, construct and, like, add more elements of drama to the general yeah. narrative. Like, it's a long enough story. There's like, enough, like, side adventures. Like, it, I'm, I'm not I'm not saying, like, not to do what, you, what you're asking for, Riki. I mean, like, you don't have to, like, add some dark secret and this or that. It's like, yeah, just kind of those two characters talking a little bit more about, you know, their their very different yet similar kind of um relationships with with their dad. Like I, I could see that, you know. And yeah. Katara certainly has strong feelings about it. Like I think she like cries her eyes out and at one point blames her father for mm-hmm. their their mother being kidnapped, right? Or mm-hmm. or killed. It's like you you weren't there, I think, is the narrative. Isn't that right? Yeah. Isn't that the... Yeah, there's the a scene where right? when Aang disappears sure. to go off and, like, do his own spirit quest, she starts by... V. She goes to her father, like, very upset about Aang and, like, how could Aang leave us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And her father's receptive enough to be like, sweetie, is that what you're really upset about? And she's without missing a beat, goes, dad, how could you have left us? And I don't remember that they... That her mom got killed after the dad and the other warriors left i thought they there was a raid her mom died and then the dad be, yeah. and whoever else went out after but like left us alone i think is that you know right we had but, already okay. lost mom think, and now you left yeah i think, I think you're right the thing but, but yeah. she definitely has feelings about for about sure. him leaving yes right yeah yeah so let's talk about Katara. <laughs> yeah, uh, let's talk about Katara, and and not to revisit a conversation that Riki and I and 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 Sarah Hayashi all had for a long time during our discussion about rebels. Is bloodbending fundamentally a bad thing? Oh. <laughs> obviously it is. I mean, I don't think so. Uh. <laughs> I, I, I like. It's like is using the force to paralyze someone like who's about to kill someone like. Okay, I'll just give you a hypothetical. There's two people. Or there's one person sitting down in a chair. And someone else is behind them. And they're about to smash them over the head. Or like lop their head off. And you use yeah. bloodbending to physically stop them. Please tell me what's wrong with that. If you don't have any other non-bloodbendy way. That you can basically, without fail, stop this person from murdering this other person. Yeah. Uh, even more so because, like, your other way of stopping them might be to murder the killer, the potential killer. Sure, yeah. Like, bloodbending doesn't, like, harm someone the way maybe hitting them with a fireball does. Um, like, I think my only real complaint about the show is that I, I – and this is kind of going to get into a larger issue, but it is about Katara because the Katara storyline. It does sometimes feel like there's – let me actually back up on this. I think one part of the show that I feel hasn't aged very well and that I have a real kind of – I had some of a complaint with at the time, but much more so even now, is I feel like at the time the show was made, we had this general cultural idea that there are acceptable ways to fight evil and there are not acceptable ways to fight evil. 
and that there are some methods of fighting that are just not okay. And that both is a, like, the way you do combat, but also just the way, like, who you attack, you know? And so we set up Jet and his band as the, like, they are clearly going too far in a way that, like, our heroes never would. And I don't agree with Jet, necessarily. I think he is attacking innocent people. But I think there's been a larger cultural shift in conversation that maybe we shouldn't be so quick to judge the actions of oppressed people in fighting their oppressors. And that the kind of moral... That there's sort of a problem or a hypocrisy of sitting on a moral high ground of not being the oppressed person and judging, like, this is an okay way to fight and this is not an okay way to fight. And I, I found myself watching the Jet plotline and how judgmental everyone is of them very quickly and feeling a lot of sympathy towards them. Not in a, like, I think that they're right, but in a, like, they're the ones who are most feeling the boot on their necks of what's happening to them. Why are we so quick to judge them? And, and I kind of feel the same about bloodbending and, and the character who does bloodbend, Hannah, in that, like, when people are doing horrible things to you and your family, I'm not really concerned about the methods you use to stop that happening. I think the story that plays out of because she's willing to use these methods, she goes darker and darker and darker to the point where now she just wants revenge. That's a story I'm with. I guess I just feel like there's an idea in the story of we can pass judgment on the way other people who are in terrible situations and oppressed situations are fighting back against that oppression that I was kind of uncomfortable with at the time. And I'm very uncomfortable with this, this time I watched it. And for me, that kind of – and Katara is the main character at the heart of both of these storylines of the bloodbending and of the jet and his, his fighters. I, I, I mean – Fundamentally, I understand the trolley problem that that Paul brings up, but from a, I I always return to the fact that this is fiction, right? And there are certain conceits we have to have in fiction. We talked about the violent, I guess in last episode, we talked about the fictionalized violence and how it's very different from a more realistic uh, violence that's depicted in media. And... Moral questions like this, I think, in fiction are set up in a way that certain characters or certain actions are deliberately portrayed to be uh, evil, to contrast with the main characters or to give a point of reference to why the main characters are, are quote-unquote good. I mean, they are good, but I mean, like, better than other people, right? Like, it's the whole Batman doesn't kill thing right like he has batman is such a dark character that there has to be a distinction between him and his rogues gallery and what he does and like that's the line that he draws and that's why we still hold him up as a as a hero in a sense and so like here i i think like it it, it might be a little black and white and comical or i, I don't know if that's the right word but but the, the moralistic stance is that bloodbending is evil, and because Katara chooses not to, even though she learns how to do it, she chooses not to kill the, the Fire Nation raider, the Southern raider guy mm-hmm. in, the, in the follow-up, that that makes her a good character. And that's, that's just kind of like, we have to accept that as a conceit of the fiction, I think, in this one. Well, the thing that sticks out to me is that, like, the... <laughs> the scenario that I concocted, what if instead of, okay, that exact scenario, say there's um, 
I don't know, like a a murderous fire lord who's trying to conquer the world. And you want to stop him, but without killing him. And you're trying to figure out how you could possibly do that. And like, I don't know, maybe if you knew bloodbending, you could just do that. And yeah. like, like Katara literally actually had the answer to like Aang's own internal quandary. She had her own... Inter- I mean, to me, like, her not wanting to kill the guy is very different from, like, not wanting to use bloodbending. I mean, I just, I feel like it's it's a tool like any other tool. And, and it's always, like, what are the consequences of this? You know, what? Right. what um, <clears throat> and the, these things where it's like, uh, you know, people talk, this is the same discussion of mind control, right? Except here it's not actually mind control. It's just physical control. It's right. like, well, and, and just for the context, when I said that Riki and I have discussed this in terms of Star Wars Rebels, it's specifically about Ezra using the Force to mind control the Imperial pilot of a you know attack walker to cause the attack walker to go off a cliff. Yeah, so, and yeah, I was on that episode, control. by the way. Um, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it was it was it was fun, and um, I imagine I had the same point at the same time where it's you mm-hmm. know, um, I mean that that's murder. You know, it's what it, you know, here we're talking about, you know, it's like the force. If you could just be like, don't kill that guy. Oh, I don't want to kill this guy. It's like, but bloodbending is even a step less than that, where you're only controlling their physical body and like, they can still have whatever thoughts they want. You know, you're not like fundamentally changing the person. It's like, what's the difference between bloodbending someone into paralysis and like, intercepting someone's hand and putting them in a wrist lock to where they can't physically cause harm at the moment. Like, well, but if, if two people are attacking you is bloodbending one of them to fight the other, maybe the, the larger, where it's not just about self-defense. It's also oh, about people making where fight each you're other. having them. Yeah. I mean, now we're getting into a more, but so that's not Which a question of whether or not bloodbending is okay. That's right. a question of whether or not that is an okay application of bloodbending. Right. Yeah. Of course, there's horrible applications of it. I mean, it's like airbending, like Aang is this like very non-violent fighter, right? Non-lethal mm-hmm. fighter. He's with the exception of tanks falling off of cliffs and whatever, like he's basically trying to separate himself from an opponent, separate an opponent from someone they're attacking, um, extinguish fires, whatever it is, right. you know, using airbending in order to do non-lethal means of self-defense or defending others right using um you know but you can use the same power to just and before this happened in a later series i thought this myself i was like wait you could just use airbending to just like suffocate people you know just like like that and like you know you can argue like is that a good or bad use of it well it's certainly a violent murderous use of it you know and I mean, to me, if nothing else, if you shoot a, a laser bolt at me and I use a lightsaber to reflect it back at one of your friends versus if you're pointing a laser gun at me and I use, you know, blood bending to shift your arm so it hits someone else, right. they're the same. And it, I get, going back to kind of where I was going, which I, I guess is more about the jet plot line than the blood bending, but to me, they feel very similar. Uh-oh. Um, I, I hear what you're saying, Riki, about the, 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 the fictional world. I guess to me... At, and just to be explicit, like I'm talking, I think this is a general thing to be sure, but I am talking in this moment specifically about like Hamas and, and Gaza and Israel and all that. I, I think at least for myself, 
growing up seeing these stories where there were clear lines of is acceptable to fight evil in these ways, but if you cross this line, then now you're actually becoming as bad as the thing you're fighting, put me in a position where I would often be able to cast moral judgment on, you know, other freedom groups or oppressed groups that were dealing with oppression I was dealing with that were fighting in ways that maybe I felt uncomfortable with. And again, this is not meant to be therefore a blanket endorsement of of JET or a blanket endorsement of groups like that in our own world. I I guess just I've got to a point where I feel like I'm I'm uncomfortable with shows that are saying there's a clear black and white line because I think it teaches us that we can we can see the actions of others in our own world today in a clear black and white line which is something I'm very uncomfortable with. And that I, I feel like the way that the situation in Gaza is being talked about is a good example of. Mm. I, I, f- I feel like the last airbender show actually, I mean, jet is a sympathetic character, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Hannah, I think, right. Is a, Hannah yeah, the bloodbender. is a sympathetic character. Like there, I sure there's an element to which, you know, this show is kind of saying, like, these aren't things you should do, or maybe not as an extent to which, but it's kind of clearly saying, you know, this isn't the way. But, like, I I, I do think it, it does well to, like, show that struggle of, like, you know, when facing oppression or confronted with some other n- negative force, like, you know, there, there are different ways to go about how you engage with that. And, you know, it's worth at least thinking about like whatever you have to say about what any group or individual does in order to fight against opposite uh, oppression or, mm-hmm. or whatever else. I, I think it's at least worth suggesting that like it's <laughs> when you g- go about doing something like that, you know, give some thought to the full consequences of your action. Like, I think, mm-hmm. you know, and you come to your own conclusions, you know, like, like Zuko does. But like, ultimately, like, yeah, I, I think if you don't give any thought to that, then you're not giving any thought to like, what the world is going to be like after you do whatever you do, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. But I, I, I hear you. Yeah. I, I guess I very much hear that. I guess it's just the, like, what I really am getting stuck on a lot these days is I have a lot more room to think about those consequences when it's not the boot on my neck. And that I'm just cautious about, therefore, making the judgment about someone who is in that situation, you know? And, and I think that's where I – I think – to me, I think Jet is portrayed as a, as a cautionary tale in that we're very sympathetic, but, the, but it's perceived as kind of like because of the terrible things he's gone through, he has made a mistake. He's gone wrong. In a way that I, I, um, it, yeah, it was hard. Yeah, I, I hear you. I mean, I think he has though. Like, he tries to kill an entire village of people, and like, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. I just think that's bad. I'm always going to think that's bad. Like, yeah, no, I, I agree. I don't with you think on it's that. okay. Yeah, yeah. I think bloodbending is fine, <laughs> but maybe not like bloodbending a bunch of people to go be frozen in a cave who aren't all just like a bunch of the soldiers who are oppressing you, like that. Right. Specifically, what she did seemed bad, but you know. I don't know. Yeah. So my my thought on this is that again, like I'm approaching this as a as a work of fiction and and how mm-hmm. the writers are presenting something to us. Because while I, I agree with a a lot of your thoughts, Matthew, I think it's important 
to not draw too many lines between fiction and reality. Just just in a general standpoint, because if we do that, then if we make fiction too real, I, I think it it loses something. It loses some power of storytelling because real life is messy. Real life is not black and white. And like you, you could make the argument that every every war is evil. I mean, that's not that's how I believe that. But you you lose the ability for characters in fiction to enact violence or or do things that you know we have to accept as part of this story. But on the bloodbending, I think there is like this line that the the storytellers are are drawing. And what I find important is that in the fictional world, the characters are also drawing that line. Mm. Um, Katara is choosing not to bloodbend, right? She's choosing not to use this power because she, in her own heart, is drawing this line, a moral line of, this is evil, I won't cross this line. And I find the agency of her choice to be an important part of her character compared to other works of fiction where evil powers like this literally like through magic corrupt their soul and like you mm. literally see like the black in yeah, their yeah. in their veins and stuff as they use that yep. power right like that that is like a, a storytelling method but i find it's so much more powerful that she makes these choices rather than like the choice being forced upon her because it's literally like sucking her soul out like that's that's what i yeah. like about it i think I think that's very fair, and, and I do agree. Like, I love something like um, probably my favorite superhero movie of all time to this day is still Logan, Be, in part because the violence is so uncomfortably awful to watch, even when it is for the most righteous of purposes. And I feel like the world needs that because I think if people watch movies and think violence in a good cause is awesome, that's a bad thing. And but I also think if every movie was like that, it would be horrible. And I guess. At this moment in time, with what's happening in the world on today, February 13th, I am feeling particularly aware of the problems of people feeling like we can draw easy moral lines of how people should act in situations that we're not in. And so I'm probably, I'm at a time where I'm like, I really, I wish there was more fiction that didn't do that. But you're right, there is fiction that didn't do that, and not all fiction should do that. And so, yeah, I I think you're making a very good point. I guess I'm just saying, for me right now at least, in this historical moment, that's a storyline that I'm really wrestling with. You know, but I, I, I think there's a need for both. There's so much more we can say about this, but we haven't actually talked about Katara at all. So, um, Paul, take us away. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I really like what you said, Riki, about um, while I disagree with Katara and the character's stances that, like, bloodbending is necessarily fundamentally evil or something one shouldn't do. I very much appreciate that she has come to this conclusion. She's come to a conclusion, decided to take a stance on it and say, I'm not going to do that. That's not how I want to fight this war, basically. And um, I think, you know, in the story, I mean, she's kind of, she's like, she's the narrator, right? In the intro, like, yeah. yeah. She's the one who's like, oh, this is the Avatar. We have to help the Avatar become the Avatar so we can stop this war. Like, you know, she's really the character who kind of gets things to move the way they need to move. And, you know, she does go 
to the Northern Water Tribe to learn how to waterbend. And she gradually, over the course of the series, becomes a waterbending master. Um, and I think that that journey of training, while also trying to be a teacher, you know, and having, having you know, grown up, I guess, as a young adult in, like, martial arts culture, having been pressed into, you know, service as a teacher, basically as a red belt, um, teaching like junior black belts, which was weird, but like teaching things that I was still learning. Like I relate to her a lot in that way of like this, okay, I'm learning something still and I'm trying to teach it to someone who doesn't know it yet while also trying to learn myself to do it better partially so I can then teach them what's next. You know, it's like, as a teacher, like learning more actually can help you become a better teacher. And and teaching someone who is, for mystical reasons, far better at learning the stuff than you are in ways that are, I think, legitimately frustrating at times. Sure. Yeah, for oh, sure. Yeah, they like, show that. Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah, having like a very talented student who just like, it's like, oh, it, it took me a little longer to learn that one. You know, that can be a, you know, an, a bit of an ego check, right? And yeah. Um, but as a teacher, it's important to be able to overcome that and to, to celebrate, you know, your students' successes and then to know when it's like time for them to either move on to another teacher or just kind of do their own thing because, you know, you've taught them what you have to learn. So Katara being this this teacher and also being a student and, and learning um, throughout the series – you know, she sets things into motion, really, but also doesn't have a lot of times to kind of just, like, do her thing, you know? And there's a few, like, the, I think, the Painted Lady, I think, is that what it's called? Or the Lady mm-hmm. of the Lake? Whatever. Yeah. Whatever. She, you know, where there's this polluted lake and there's this lake town and there's this factory and then, you know, she does stuff. And, um, you know, she, she really doesn't have a lot of spots where she her agency is to like kind of do what she wants to do. You know, she's like, I feel like a lot of the time she's kind of trying to keep them on task and on course and everything. Um, and so it's, it's nice when maybe like one time a season or so, you know, she really gets an episode where um, she gets to be the the driving force of that episode and, yeah. you know, kind of make, make her decisions for like, what's, what's going to happen, what she's going to do there. And so, so I appreciate her choice with regard to, choosing not to bloodbend, even if I don't see it as just some innately evil, objectively, oh, you definitely shouldn't do that kind of thing. Like, yeah. the fact that she sees it that way and then decides to not use this very powerful weapon, essentially, um, mm-hmm. I think is is still a, a powerful message, even if I'm like, well, I don't think that weapon's so bad. It's like, no, but she does, and she chooses not to use it for that reason. And I respect that. Like, her journey... To yeah. becoming a waterbending master is is pretty underrated, I think, in light of all of the other characters and their power levels. Yeah. Because at the end of this show, she's the one who defeats Azula in one-on-one yeah. combat. Like, yeah. Zuko challenges Azula to the Agni Kai, but he has to make the selfless sacrifice play when Azula turns her lightning to Katara. And he's Z- Zuko's taken out of it. Yeah, and then she has to face Azula one on one and defeats her, and I I think that's that's a really interesting moment to me. Mm-hmm. That whole fight and how that plays out, and it, and it maybe like an expectation subversion, or at least I wasn't expecting it to play out that way. But I really like it for for both of their yeah. characters. Yeah, a- I, I think it it is really well done, especially because this is changing now. But at the time that the show was originally made. 
there was often a sense of like your female protagonist has to fight your female antagonist. And it didn't feel like that was set up here, you know, in terms of like the fight between Azula. Right. How it winds up being the fight between Azula and Katara. Yeah. The other thing I would just say about Katara's character that I want to say, and then I think we have to move on because there's a lot more still to talk about. I love that she is the last one to really come around on Sokka's humor. Because, and again, <laughs> I found it very relatable in a way, because what, what I see in the situation is that his humor, like, the two of them are kind of the, the people who are really helping to hold the Water Tribe together in a lot of ways. They're the, kind of the oldest of the younger generation that's still left behind. He deals with all by humor. And other people may appreciate that, but to her, she feels like he's being humorous because she has to be the one to take to take everything seriously and to take care of everything. And so she sees his humor as him kind of shirking responsibilities. And so when they rejoin everyone else who doesn't have that backstory... All they see is Sokka's humor, which they love, and sometimes love to roll their eye roll to eye roll at, something I can very much relate to as the the uh, very proud king of bad puns. And, and so the idea that like the rest of them are like, oh yeah, we love Sokka's bad jokes, and Katara's like, she sees the bad jokes as the reminder of all the things that he didn't do for the tribe that she had to do. I just really love that, and it's one more part of her growth that I think is essential. Let's turn to uh, the last member of the gang. We haven't really talked about Toph. And I, and I will just start by saying Toph to me is not only a great character, but an incredibly important character because she is in a very small group that's being added to. And I think uh, Echo in the MCU is now very much also part of the group of good representation of disability in science fiction fantasy because – and it's not her entire character. That's a very important thing as well. But so I've often talked about this, that so often you have a disabled character who is then given, through science fiction or magic, the, basically the ability to erase their disability in a way that no longer becomes relatable. And the fact that she, and granted, I'm not blind, so I can't speak to that particular experience, but the way that she has, you know, through her ability, through earthbending, to sort of better, you know, have senses that are better than everyone else's and to still function very much in the world but it never takes away her blindness. And in, again, what I think is so relatable, I, I mean, if you've been around me for at any period of time, you've probably heard me make a bad joke about my amputation. Um, you know, I'm going to jump to my foot, you know, something like that. Um, and she makes bad jokes about her lack of vision all the time, as well as jokes with others. Like when they're like, oh my gosh, Toph, you have to see this poster. And she's like, do I? Do I have to see the poster? Um I, I, I find her character one of the most, as a disabled person, one of the ones I can most relate to. And I just absolutely love her. And I love that she exists. And I love that they, they understood that issue enough to write her that way. Yeah, I mean, I agree with all of that. Uh, obviously, I don't know from personal experience, but it felt like a satisfying representation to me. And I hope it was to uh, blind audience members who have... Mm -hmm. Uh, experienced this show so yeah like everything you said about the humor i think her humor is just spot on and the, her addition in season two really like took the show into the stratosphere for me like it was already a good show in season one but adding her to the group like and the dynamic of it and her like her power again like her power level from the start was off the yeah. charts and then she learns how to metal bend it's like oh my gosh what is going on here she's just a great character all around um i i love the voice acting 
it, it just a perfect character. I mean, not my favorite, but I th- I think there's like a no notes, right? Like I can't think of a way to make her better. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree with all of that. Um I think like some some high notes for me are I mean, obviously when when she actually figures out metal bending, it's like, <laughs> "Wait, <Wow>. what?" <laughs> yeah. Um and then um you know, when she has tea with Iroh, um, you know, when, when Zuko burns her feet and like the way she reacts to that, I think, you know, afterwards, mm-hmm. the, the way she kind of is like, well, you know, I'm the one whose feet he burned and I'm like, okay, let's give him a chance. Yeah. Um, and then, um, when she's outside the library and the library sinking into the desert, into the mm-hmm. sand and Appa's being abducted. And she, like, wants to help Appa, but she also doesn't want all of her other friends to be lost underground. Mm-hmm. Um, is it's such, a, it's such a hard moment, you know, for her. Um, and, you know, you can, you can tell how much she cares about all of them, in, you know, including Appa. And, yeah. um, and, you know, that's, like, one of the few times, like, her power isn't quite enough. Like, because she has – she really does have – she's the character – who enters, I think, with the highest, like, obvious power level, you know? Yeah, I think um, very true. Who just, like, steps on screen, and you're like, oh, she can do that, you know? Yeah. And, and she does, you know, like you're saying about characters in fiction, um, you know, she does have a power that lets her um, sort of circumvent her disability to an extent in certain right. ways at times, you know? But then at yeah. other times it doesn't, and in other ways it doesn't. You know, it's not like... It's not quite like Daredevil, right? Yeah, and, and the desert scene you're talking it's, about is a good sign of where it's the power is infallible because right. for her standing on sand, she says it's like feeling like my vision's incredibly blurry. Exactly. Her it doesn't always work. Yeah. yeah. Or like if she's flying on Appa, it's like she can't perceive the other people around her the way she could if they were standing on solid ground. Right. And they do they do a good job in moments like when she first joins the group and asks for her championship belt back and Sokka just drops it to her from right. uh, from Appa and it hits her mm-hmm. on the head because she, you know, can't see it using her, mm-hmm. her earth bending powers. Like that's that's a fun moment and it's believable. But I do think like uh, in a lot of the combat, it's very inconsistent about like what she can. I- I'm going to keep using yeah. the word see. You know, right. what she can see yeah, and what perceive. she can't that's yeah. flying through the air at her. So yeah. it's it's hard. I, I think it's very hard to write that character correctly, like in moments like that. So I don't know. I, I think we can be critical of it and say, like, it's inconsistent, but still yeah. overall. So I guess I do have a note. <laughs> <laughs> but overall, like it, it given I, given where representation on this has been in the past, I think it's yeah. just a monumental leap forward. Yeah. And I mean, this is also a show that started 20 years ago, right? So where representation was at that point in time. Mm -hmm. And also, like, would it be a better show if they were perfectly consistent about all of her combat abilities? Like, she probably would be less powerful if they really tried to, you know. Yep. But but now, like, talking about the live action show, maybe that 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 is something that sure. they can think about and address more. Try try to address it more realistically. Like, yeah. I don't think it yeah. can be completely realistic. Like, as none of these martial arts will probably be. Like, there will be certainly a lot of w- wires involved in making people fly around. Right. So yeah. it's 
I'm not expecting it to be like completely realistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but let let's try to continue to move the conversation on it. Yeah, I yeah, think. definitely, and give us like, some continuity, hopefully, right throughout yeah. the series. Right, yeah, for sure. And I'll say to listeners, um, for anybody who is part of the blind community, um, uh, or uh, you know, uh, uh, has anything related to that, would love to hear from you as well. Yeah, um, because it's we're talking about a television show, and it's a it's a fundamentally a visual entertainment medium. But I like I don't want to take anything away from blind audience members, right? Like that want to enjoy it and, and to please let us know if you have a different experience or a different understanding of this character than us because like none of us can speak to this very much so um we don't have too much more time so i do want to kind of start wanting to wrap up there's one particular plot line though that for me is i think honestly my favorite plot line in the show Uh and that i did not realize how prescient it was until the last few years and that's bossing say and for those who don't remember or don't know, I realize we've actually done a terrible job of, of summarizing a lot of this stuff for people who haven't seen the show because we're jumping into it. But in bo- the one of the conceits that we've said is that there's been 100 years of war and that most of that war is happening right now within the Earth Kingdom, with the Fire Nation invading but having not quite conquered it yet. And But the capital city of the Earth Kingdom, Ba Sing Se, where the Earth King lives, uh, there is no war in Ba Sing Se. Like, they have done so much to eradicate this idea and really propagandize so that the people in the city can live this happy, sort of joyous life of, you know, not knowing about the problems outside literally their city walls. And, and just think, being oppressed by their own Earth King and their own ridiculous right. government instead of <laughs> everything and, going on. And very much, like, I just did an episode on my other podcast about Attack of the Clones where I say that I... One of the things that I hate about that is when we reveal that Dooku isn't just doing this all of his own in a way that is perfect for Palpatine's plans, but is actually an agent of Darth Sidious. There is never a moment where it is said that the Long Fang, the person who's running all this, is in some way working for the, the Fire Nation. He does later when he's caught out and is exposed. But in the moment, it's just like, no, this is what people do sometimes in times of war. And... You know, probably when I watched it, I thought, "Ah, that's a little over the top. That's not really believable. Having now lived through there is no COVID in USA uh, and the many other times where I think this has become very applicable. Like, that's, I think, the most direct one. But I also think just the, the idea of that people who live in comfortable situations can very comfortably ignore the fact that these horrible things are happening to people maybe down the street or maybe across the world from them is actually really, really... And that our media does an awful lot to help sustain that um, is really very prescient. And so to me, it is the... It's probably the storyline that I'm most investing in them doing right and them really kind of keeping the same... Like, the metaphor of it doesn't have to be over the top, but it has to be there of... You know, th- this is this is a very real thing. It's not a, a fantasy, oh my gosh, how could they do this in a fantasy world? You know, the, the level of brainwashing involved is probably a little bit fantastical. But, you know, it, just, it, it is one of the storylines that has proven so true over the years since it was made that I'm really looking forward to. I'm both trepidatious, but also looking forward to seeing how they do it on screen. Yeah, I think we did an episode of this very podcast titled There Is No Racism in Passing Say. That was yeah. kind of about, you know, people who don't know that racism is like going on, don't 
know that, it, you know, like that there's anyway, we don't have to, you can go listen to it. Episode 94, I think. But like the, the point being that there's like, yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> Sorry. That's all I have to say. Like there, there's a lot of things that like, if you don't know about it, you don't know about it. And it's easy to form opinions um, that are very strong, but like completely uninformed and like make no sense. Cause it's like, yeah, you, you need to know something to really have an opinion on it. That I mean, you need to know something, right? Like, yeah. So, um, yeah. Well, you open the can. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> let, let me talk about, uh, race in the show, right? Like we, we talked about representation, of uh, disability. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Paul, you mentioned uh, Aang's vegetarianism. And obviously, like, I'm, I'm Japanese, and this is a highly Asian-inspired show. Like, the, the fantasy world feels like all Asian, right? Mm -hmm. of, yeah, outside of, of the... Uh, yeah, the, the, the water, water tribes, tribes right? are, are, are native North American inspired i guess and i think actually they they are more inspired by russian um okay. and okay. and asian uh or arctic although those yeah. people like asian arctic and north american arctic have quite a lot in common yeah. but but yeah but for me like it's talking about like what's what we're gonna see in the live action like that is what i'm most curious about and excited for in a lot of ways because being an animated show a lot of the voice actors, I, I love them to death. You know, like Mark Hamill as Ozai, yeah. obviously like a top tier. You know, we know him as the Joker in Batman, just a top tier villain. Whenever he shows mm -hmm. up, he's fantastic. Same thing with Clancy Brown. You just mentioned yeah. uh, uh, the leader of the Dai Li Fong. Clancy Brown is another like great voice actor and villain, but yeah, these are like old Lex white Luther guys. Yeah. Right. So I'm I'm very excited for the live action because they are casting people who, you know, are Asian, of Asian ancestry. I'm not going to spoil any of the names, but like the, some of them are very notable actors. And, and they, the young, the Aang, the Avatar gang is like young people. So like mostly unknown, I think. Yeah. But still, like, honoring the, the traditions that have been set up in this fictionalized universe, like the, the parallels to the real world. So I, I, I just, I'm really excited about that. And I'm a little worried. And let me tell you why I'm worried. Because this, the Fire Nation in the fictionalized world is, most people believe it to be inspired by Imperial Japan. Right. I, I think that's that's and that there's a there's a lot of debate and discussion we could have a whole nother episode. I'm sure we could have about that. And we may have when we discuss the live action show. But that's as part of my own heritage, like that's a very disappointing and, and terrible history that we have of of colonizing other Asian countries. And so. It's, it's going to be very interesting for me to see how they represent this fictionalized world because it's you even though it's fiction you're, you're going to draw parallels you're going to draw visual parallels like the 
there's an episode where Aang goes to school in the Fire Nation and and yeah. learns about their propaganda, and that's like just straight out of how you know stuff like that happened. And so, I really hope it's done well. And I and I think the way that they the the casting choices they have made shows to a care that they have, and and like the original creators, like the cultural consultants that they had on hand to make the animated show. I think it shows a lot of care from the very beginning in, in wanting to make it, you know, not accurate because it's, again, it's fiction, but make it true to a lot of the things that they're drawing inspiration from. Yeah. I I think it's, I think it's very important that it's a fantasy series, right? It's a fantasy setting. Like the fire nation is not Imperial Japan. It certainly the first time I saw it, I thought that was the main inspiration. Apparently, it's actually supposedly mostly inspired by the Qin Dynasty, uh, the the like first Chinese dynasty that kind of set up the the Chinese Empire. I think like their mm-hmm. their actual helmet design and stuff like that is um, looks like that. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't also have inspiration drawn from Imperial Japan and. Right. Um, and I mean, you know, with Mako voicing Uncle Iroh as one of the few characters that actually has a, like, accent of, like, English not as a first language, right? Like, he speaks mm-hmm. with... Uh, um, George Takei plays, um, like, a prison warden yeah. in one of the mm-hmm. episodes. Yeah. Um, but, like, as far as, like, in the main cast, you know... Um, it's, and and I think there's this idea that kind of like the older generation is supposed to speak a little differently than the younger generation and whatever. But like, um, I, I definitely am happy that they're hiring actors of Asian descent to play most of the characters. Cause that, that's just, and that was one of the complaints about the, the first movie, you know, that, um, it was like, they just mostly hired white actors and then they made, you know, the fire nation, I think was like Indian, um, like Asian Indian. And it was just a, it was, it was a choice, you know, yeah. it didn't seem like a good one. And um, so I, I, I do, it, I do think it's like a very difficult line, right. To try and straddle the, this is not a direct representation of any given culture, but it is clearly inspired by, a number of cultures or a set of cultures or, you know, and so how do you like pay homage to that and like actually be accurate to an extent with, while making it clear that it's not actually a direct representation, like of, of a specific um, culture. And I think that's just hard. And the first series I think did the animated series, I think did a, a great job of that for the time it was made. I would hope that a series made like that now did a better job of that. And mm-hmm. so I hope that the live action series kind of continues to improve in that direction. Yeah. Um, yeah and it's interesting because a lot of it, I think also comes down to what are the things that you're looking at that are informing you? Because I'll, I'll be honest for me, I'm not very much a visual person and I don't, I know more now than I did when I watched the show, in part because of discussions with the two of you and many others. I didn't know enough to know, like, oh, these things are, they look like 
aspects of Imperial Japan versus Imperial China versus, you know, Tibet or, or other things like that. But I do know the history of Imperial Japan quite well. And I think in many ways, it's that the the Fire Nation is portrayed as kind of portrayed as like the first one to become more industrial than a lot of the others. And then to use yeah. that industrial might yeah. in a way to conquer. And then also that it gets like kind of trapped in this unending war in the Earth Kingdom which is very reminiscent of the Imperial Japan in China, down to even... It's also... It's an island nation, too, you know? Yeah, yeah. And down to even the, like, by the time of the Legend of Korra, there's all this, like, chaos of who is going to rule the, you know, who is going to rule the Earth Kingdom, very much in that, like, you know, the the Chinese Civil War that eventually leads to uh, Mao and all that is very much a response of the chaos of... of, I mean... uh, Massively simplifying history in a couple things, but yeah, but I think, and it's an interesting lesson, I think, of like, what is it you're paying t- attention to? Is you're paying attention to the historical details? You're paying attention to the accents of the actors? You're paying attention to the martial art? Like, I I did not have any understanding until I think, Paul, you really helped me see that, like, the that there are different martial arts used by, and I, I if I remember correctly. And Jacob, actually, I think, maybe. Yeah, I think so. And, and tell me if I'm wrong here, but my memory is that the Fire Kingdom style is more closely associated to karate, to karate, which is more Japanese influenced, and that the Earth Kingdom is more kung fu, which is more Chinese influenced. And so I, that, I feel like yeah. there's so many different axes on which this representation is shown. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, I think it's also a, a reminder to all of us of like yeah, grabbing one thing and saying therefore this is that is is something to be careful of. Yeah, and, and I think that was my first interpretation, but I think it was actually based more on like northern styles of, mm-hmm. of kung fu, um which then were which is what like Shotokan karate is like more inspired, you know, based on, which is my main like what I've seen like We'd have people come to the Dojang who, like, did Shotokan before, and I'd be like, ah, that that guy did Shotokan, like, just by the way they move, you know? Whereas, like, if someone did, like, Gojuru, like, they just move a different way, and that's, like, more like the Southern styles. And and, and so, again, it's a thing where, to me, like, in, in my view, I definitely thought the Fire Nation was inspired by Imperial Japan, you know? And that was just, you know, a combination of my lack of... Um, understanding and knowledge of like uh, a larger sense of Asian history and, and culture and everything. But also like there are elements like the industrialization that, you know, and the, the, it being this, this Island nation that like, you know, so again, it's a fantasy setting that draws aspects like the martial arts are more specifically like the water bending is just like straight up Tai Chi, you know? And, mm-hmm. and, um, but so yeah, there's, there's, you know, and they, I mean, they use characters, right? That are, you're like, oh yeah, that's, that's the word for this. That's the word for that. Like, um, although I think in the live action adaptation, they just replaced them with like some made up symbols or something. I don't know, which seems like really weird. Um, but like they had an advisor specifically for the calligraphy, you know, yeah. they had an advisor specifically for, you know, the martial yeah. arts. And, and that's the type of thing that I think you need to do if you want to borrow aspects from real world cultures and integrate them into fantasy cultures. I think you need to know enough about those cultures to know, like, are you, are you going to make something feel like something really uncomfortable? Like, do you, do you know the history enough to know where you're kind of pressing? And if you just change one thing, is that going to be like, Oh, Oh no, you didn't like, you know, 
like where it feels like you're saying something that wasn't necessarily something you meant to say at all, but like just through ignorance, like you end up kind of making some political statement that's like, oh, that's not that's not a good statement to make. Right. There, there are so many situations of, you know, what we would call bad representation where you're just like, you know, that something depicting, you know, like an Asian culture was written by a, a room full of white people. And mm-hmm. it just like comes off like so hammy and, and poorly written. And this, this just never felt like that because like, I don't know the the racial makeup of the writer's room, but as Paul said, like they have at least done their due diligence and research mm-hmm. and had consultants on hand and they talked to people. And, and that's, that's what I want. Like, obviously like every moment where you can get more representation anywhere, whether it's on screen, voice acting, like writer's room, like I, I love that. But at the very least, you know, like, don't don't make like basically like cultural appropriation the TV show. And I, I don't yeah. believe that that's yeah. what this is at all. And I, I think that's so true. And I'll say even for me, I remember when I first started watching it and, you know, it, like Ricky, I'm very glad you brought up that topic. It's one that I wanted uh, that I wanted to be able to ask you about, but also want to be cautious about because I never want to do the tokenizing of like, oh, hey, the Asian person says that it's OK, so it's OK, because I think and, or, or even asking you to be the definitive voice of any of these things. So I think it's, these conversations will often be handled carefully. And in that similar vein, I did have some concern going into the show of like, oh, it all feels very Asian, but it's written by white people. And one of the things that made me more comfortable about it was someone telling me that George Takei was a voice actor in it because he is someone who's been very upfront uh, all along in his career um, that you know he regretted a lot of the things about Star Trek that felt very kind of tokenizing towards his character. And that he once he sort of felt like he could start picking and choosing his roles, that he was going to be very careful never to sort of play into a white written Asian stereotype. And so the fact that he had chosen to be involved with this was like, okay, that that tells me a lot about like what this kind of a show is. And you know, obviously, that was in season one, and things could have gone wrong. And um, so yeah, so and I and I do know, I mean, I I know there are some folks who do object to the live act to the animated show because it's white people writing about it you know and and they have so so i'm not to say that it's universal acclaim for it um but yeah i i think it's gonna be a very important topic to keep an eye on in the live action and that will all kind of uh, i'm curious to hear hear both your thoughts on and the, and the thoughts of many others yeah i mean like i i will most certainly have thoughts and feelings about it and like i'm just one person and mm-hmm. most notably like I'm, my background is that I'm culturally, like, I am very American. Like, I grew up here 90% of my life. And I don't, I lack a lot of connection to more traditional Japanese culture and opinions about media. So by all means, like, I am not the sole representative of, of a voice. I'm just my own voice. And I, I will always try to be true to that, but leave the door open to other people to say, hey, like, I feel a little bit differently about this. And then I think that's what makes fandom great is having discussions in a, in a way that we can all express our opinions, but not attack each other, right? Like, if other people, like, if Asian fans of Avatar come and say, no, like, we, we see this very differently. Like, I, I would love to hear that and learn about their opinions and their point of view. Yeah. And, and I'll also say, like, I didn't even thought of this until this discussion, but Paul, you brought up the, the episodes where Aang goes to a Fire Nation school 
And it really helps us as the viewers to humanize those characters, humanize the people from the Fire Nation. And I'm realizing I think that's also going to be a very essential part of the show to me. And granted, that's not until season three. In, you know, in part because I do want to see Hotman, 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 which I think is just a great scene, <laughs> and the power of dance, but also because it, it, taking this metaphor further, Hotman. you know, Hotman. with Oppenheimer, a movie that was in public discussion this year, I think there's been a lot of attention drawn to one of the horrible things that happened at the, as the end of Imperial Japan was was the dropping of the nuclear bomb and all that, but but what made that possible in part was the massive dehumanization of Japanese people that happened within American media and Western media uh, and, and and all of that. And I feel like, again, not taking the metaphor too far, but the very intentional humanization of the people of the Fire Nation and the discussion of, you know, you know, we have to win the war at all costs, so we have to do this ultimate thing of killing Ozai. No, I don't want to do that. It's hard for me in this day and age, at least, not to see that in a little. Like, I don't think that was intended as a like nuclear bomb discussion, but it's part of a similar conversation of how much we dehumanize people in war and how much that allows us to feel like we can go to any extent in order to win the war. Yeah, and and not just the humanization of the Fire Nation, mostly children, but showing the propaganda of how they are dehumanizing the Earth Kingdom. Right. Yeah. Or, or, yeah. or infantilizing. Mm-hmm. Like one one of the reasons that I, yeah, for me personally, I draw the parallel to Imperial Japan, is that one of the characters, either like Sozin or Azalon, like one of the Fire Lords, when they're talking about the war, specifically uses the word prosperity. Like we have to bring our prosperity to the other nations, and that is at the the uh, what greater right. Asian co-prosperity greater sphere, Asian prosperity sphere yeah. is a translation the, the, that's word specifically of how Japan viewed what they were doing in Asia. So like when, when they use that word prosperity, that was like a big like light bulb for me. Like, ah, here we go. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, mm. We're out of the time limit and I have some bonus content that I'll do with, with one of you. At least you can stick around. If you, but if you both have to go, that's fine. If one of you has to go, that's fine. Uh, but so let me just say, any last thoughts you want to say? Uh, Paul, let me start with you. Both la- any last thoughts and also any plugs you want to give for the media you're creating? Yeah, I'll have some media coming soon. You can follow me, Zen Madman, on Twitter or whatever um, if you want. I'll have ZenMadman.com up again at some point. Um, we didn't talk that much about Appa, but that's fine. <laughs> he so has a bunch can, of characters. We can talk about D, Appa more later. D. Bradley Baker. <laughs> <laughs> the voice Legendary of all the clone actor is yeah. also mm-hmm. the voice of Appa and Momo, all, I think. All of his slowing. Yeah. Getting in the habit of talking to himself all the time. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I don't have that much more to say. Just, like, I love the show. It's one of my three favorite series of all time. Um, and yeah, or I don't know. It doesn't matter how many, but like, it's one of my favorite series of all time. It has many of my favorite characters of all time. Uh, if you haven't watched it, just go watch it. I don't know. Um, although I'm like, I'm actually getting my mom to watch the new series without having watched the animated. Cause I kind of want to oh, be able cool. to go. see how someone reacts to that without the previous thing. Yeah. And I want to try and take the new series on as its own, as its own thing. It doesn't have to live up to the original. It doesn't have to be the original. I hope it has many of the things I loved about the original. Um, but the original survived one bad live action version. 
it can survive another if this one doesn't work out well. Hopefully it doesn't have to. Yeah. Hopefully this is great. Um, and I will say that when I watched the Cowboy Bebop live action, I enjoyed it a lot. And then I went back and watched the animated series and I was like, oh, if I had just watched this and then watched the adaptation, I might not have liked the adaptation as much because I really saw what the people who were complaining about it didn't like. Like there's certain mm -hmm. characters that are like, oh, that character does not feel right. But the live action version was good, but it was like. I took it as a separate thing and enjoyed it. And then I went and was like, oh, the original series was brilliant too, but it was just, it was different, you know? So I hope people can yeah. kind of just take it as it is. It's what it is. Hopefully it's good. And the original is great. So, you know, at least we have Paris. I don't know. <laughs> That's all. Well, my, my ranking of this show is that like a week ago, after we agreed that we were going to do this episode, my wife Sarah just put on the first episode and then we didn't stop watching for like a week and a half. Like we, we binged it like several yeah. episodes every night. And, and that, like, that, it's just that good where you, where you start and you can't stop. And I think that we said earlier or like last episode, it's only three seasons. Yeah. And they just, they do such a good job of telling the story they wanted to tell. And then saying we're done. Yeah. We're good. Yeah. And that that's really one of the things I love about it. My my partner and I um spent a lot of last year door dashing far more than we meant to. We've had a lot of New Year's resolutions about we're gonna cook far more. And we are for the most part. <laughs> but in a similar vein, there were two different evenings where we were like, So I can get up and we pause the show for thirty minutes while I cook dinner. Or I can DoorDash and we keep watching. And Mary immediately was like, keep watching, keep watching, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, yeah, I, I'm excited. I, I'll actually say, Paul, it's interesting that you pointed out that we hadn't talked about Appa. I'm really nervous about Appa live action. Mm -hmm. Like, it's going to be all CGI'd. And so I, he is a fundamental character. And I think he was barely in the uh, yeah. first adaptation. In part, probably because even 20 years ago, live action Appa would have been a disaster. Yeah, it was like um, 14, I think. But yeah, yeah. so we'll see. So we'll see. Well, and stick around. We are going to have coverage of it right here on this podcast. So please stick around. So thank you all so much for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Remember, you can keep watching these episodes. Uh, we're, our coverage of the live action is going to be right here on the same podcast. Please subscribe, like, and subscribe, follow, do all the good things. Become a member for only $5 a month, less than a coffee from a place that I hope you're making good ethical choices about where you're getting your coffee from, uh, as well as all decisions, but, you know, do what you do. Uh, but for $5 a month, $55 a year, you can get uh, member episodes. We, we, we're doing full member episodes now. We're doing uh, member content at the end of every episode. And, of course, you can get ad-free uh, episodes. And you can support us, which is great, all for $5 a month or $55 a year. Please think about becoming a member. Please share this. Please uh, talk to your friends about it. If they're also interested in Avatar, get them signed up. And most importantly, write in. All the ways to contact us are right there in the show notes. Uh, uh, I think it's theethicalpanda at gmail.com is the easiest, but also anything – whether you want us to read your uh, comment on air or just have us first to think about, please do. Let us know what you think. Let us know as the Avatar show comes out. Uh, on behalf of myself, Ricky, Paul, thank you all so much for listening. We have spoken. Hotman. Hotman. That's rough, buddy. <laughs> there we go. There we go.